there has been a lot of talk over the years linking the town of Morton with ideas of witchcraft and the occult. From insinuations and reports of a witch's coven operating in the area, to tales of demonic conjurings taking place in library basements. I've heard them all, but I can honestly say that only one case in my few years working with the Morton police convinced me that there was more than just hearsay and conjecture at play in Morton. Stranger still, it was a case for which there was never anything close to a conviction and barely anything constituted a crime, at least in the conventional sense. I was a copper for over 30 years, working in the city and for a little while down south. For the vast majority of those years, I approached the job full on, with the pedal to the metal every single day. By the time I reached my 28th year on the force, however, going in that pace was starting to take a heavy toll on my body, my mind, and my relationships. So, in the last two years of my career, what some would call the twilight of my service, I decided a posting in a quiet town, an overspill from the city, close to the countryside would be a good posting and an idyllic place to round off a decent career. My family and I moved into the area. I moved into a position on the local force and within weeks began to hear the stories of how Morton was cursed and haunted, how there were evil forces lurking in the shadows, at the fringes of the woods, and in the shadows cast by every electric streetlight. I can honestly say my response to these stories was a shrug. I'm a copper, not a ghostbuster. I didn't believe in ghosts and monsters, and even if I did, they wouldn't be my problem. You have a murderer? Call me. You have a demon? Call an exorcist, because I'm neither qualified nor inclined to help you out. As I always used to tell my colleagues, I can help with things that go bump in the night, but only if that happens to be burglars. Morton could deal in spooky stories all it wanted. I was dealing in facts. Unfortunately for me, sometimes the line between the two is blurred. I remember distinctly, it was about three days before Halloween. I don't know if it's just because kids watch too many scary movies around that time, or the ideas just get in their heads or whatever, but almost every year without fail in every force I've worked for, the number of calls reporting intruders, people on other folks' property or shadowy figures just hanging around, goes through the roof during that week. Morton was no different. In the case of this particular call, the one at Elton Drive, we all but caught the guy red-handed. We had received a call that a young man in a hooded top, that was an extremely common description for a suspect in those days, had been seen entering a neighbor's house through a downstairs window. I'll be honest and say that when the call came in, we didn't even rush. Had this been the city, then maybe we'd have sped to the scene, sirens blaring, ready to crack down on some serious criminals. But that wasn't the case, it was Morton. At first, we didn't even think of burglary. Nine times out of ten, when a strange figure is seen entering a house by a strange means, it's the owner who's forgotten a key, or a son or daughter who decided to sneak out for the night and then creep back in undetected, only for their careful efforts to be undone by some nosy neighbor when the police turn up on the doorstep. As we approached the house, however, we received some additional information over the radio. The neighbor had informed the operator that the owners were out of town, that they had no children who might have stopped by unexpectedly, and that the male of the household, a Mr. Williams, was a teacher at the local high school. Then our thoughts turned to some kind of prank, a way of getting one over on an unpopular teacher. In essence, that is sort of what we found. 
When we entered the house using a spare key entrusted to the neighbor who had called in the intrusion, we immediately heard noises coming from the back room. Moving carefully into the room, we were just in time to see a young boy's leg disappearing back out of the window. Fortunately, the young man was just in time to run headlong into my colleague who was waiting by the only viable exit. This, you see, was not my first barbecue. Having cuffed the kid, pulled down his hood, and made him stand by the side of the car, we patted him down, searching for anything that he might have stolen from the property. As it turned out, he had nothing on him but a stencil knife, of the kind used for crafting and far too small to carry any kind of charge, and a few pages that looked as if they had been torn out of a book. Other than that, all he had in his pockets was lint. When we asked the kid why he had broken into the property, he stated casually that he hadn't broken in. I went into the house through an open window. That isn't breaking and entering. When I started clarifying the laws around illegal trespass on someone else's property, the boy just smiled and remained silent. When I asked what he had been doing in the house for the half hour between the call coming in and us arriving, his smile faded. Half an hour? That's when the call came in. I wasn't doing anything. It's a good job, isn't it? Because if I had been, you guys would have been no help whatsoever. What if I'd been a murderer or rapist, eh? Bloody please, useless. Coming from a kid in handcuffs, it felt like quite the biting criticism, especially as the neighbor, glowering at me from the other side of the car, seemed to wholeheartedly agree. We took the boy, whom we identified as Michael Campbell, to the station, asked him what he was doing at the house, why he had entered and whether he had taken anything. He remained silent on all points. I'll admit that I was keen to press charges and wipe the smug grin off that cocky little shit's face. But to be honest, there was very little we could get him on, and it didn't really seem worth it. In the end, it wasn't my choice, and the decision was made to let the kid go with just a few stern words and a telling off. Little did we know that a week later, it would be us that would be getting the telling off. I can honestly say that within three minutes of having met Liam Williams, I could see immediately why he was not a popular figure at the school. As a kid, I hated the shouty teachers. As an adult, I liked them even less, especially when they're shouting at me. Williams came into the station about a week after the boy had broken in, having only just returned from his holiday. In his hand, he held a copy of some cheap paperback novel and was waving it like it was a deadly weapon in my face and screeching like a banshee about how I had to arrest the boy and lock him up. When I tried to explain that he could press charges if he wanted to, but since there was no damage or theft, it was unlikely there would be much of a conviction. He again thrust the book at me, opening it up for me to see and highlighted how the final four or five pages of the book had been removed. He did this. He took the pages and something needs to be done about it. I sighed and carefully noted down the exact nature of the complaint, that the boy, apparently in a fit of temper-driven rebellious madness, had broken into the teacher's house and in his words, violently and recklessly ripped out the final pages of the book he was reading. In fairness, the boy did have the books in his possession when we apprehended him, and this would seem to be a targeted act of criminal damage. When I protested the words violently and recklessly, pointing out not only that the pages seemed to have been removed rather carefully, and the fact that the boy had taken a stencil knife with him specifically for the job, Williams exploded again with anger. You sound like you admire this criminal. 
like the whole thing is actually rather funny. For the first time since I met him, Liam Williams was right. The idea that a young boy, ticked off with his geography teacher, would take the time to climb into his house for no other reason than to carefully remove the ending from the book he was reading was a marvelously cruel bit of well-thought-out vengeance, and I'll admit, I was more than a little amused by it. I can't say that I liked Campbell much, but I liked Williams even less. To me, it sounded like quite a daring prank. Until that was, the letter arrived. I remember that Monday after my first meeting with Williams was the morning after my niece's wedding. I had been planning to quietly nurse my hangover in the office, but was disturbed from this plan by the ever-screaming Mr. Williams. This time, instead of a book, he held a letter, which when opened revealed a slip of paper photocopied from a book, the title of which could be read across the top of the page. The Encyclopedia of Occult Ritual and Practice, 3rd edition. The photocopied extract was from an entry under the title, Book of Ends, which explained how in folk practices for some Caribbean cultures, it was believed that taking possession of an object belonging to a target for malevolent magic was a powerful way to gain control over their fates. One of the oldest ways to do this is to steal the final pages of any book that the person is currently reading. Removing them before the person has a chance to finish the book allows the magician to intercept the target's spiritual flow, capturing their potential future, and trapping them. This is then thought to allow the magician power over the date of the individual's death. The stolen ending must be sewn into another book, and often several of these final pages would be bound together to create a so-called Book of Ends. On the day that the adept decides the target should die, all he needs to do is tear the pages from the book. On the day he does this, the target will surely die. This, Williams insisted, was a threat. When I tried to explain that whilst it might be considered harassment, only a vague, non-specific and implied threat had been made. On fact, the nature of the hocus-pocus mumbo-jumbo meant that it was actually a threat of something that may or may not be carried out at some indeterminate date in the future. It really wasn't going to make a good case for pressing charges. Eventually, and only after he filled in a complaints form about me, which I dutifully filed away in the circular filing cabinet labeled BIN, Williams left. It wasn't until six months later that the whole Book of Ends belief again reared its ugly head. When a young man named Nathan Banks was hit by a car and killed in the nearby city, his parents, driven to madness by grief, broke into the home of Michael Campbell and beat him half to death. Apparently, they were acting upon a story that Campbell had been keeping stolen pages from Banks in a small notebook he called his Book of Ends and which essentially placed a black magic hex upon the boy after they fell out in a dispute over a girl. In recent weeks, Campbell had been texting Banks each day with a single number, counting down. Five on day one, four the next, three the next, and so on. His parents insisted this was indicative that Campbell was using black magic on their son. Again, I took the whole thing with a pinch of salt, but clearly there was now some serious consequences to the whole Book of Ends mythology being put around. When I visited Nathan Banks' parents to arrest Nathan's father for assault, I couldn't help noticing a pile of books smoldering on the front lawn. Every volume and every tome in the house had been systematically removed and done away with so as to prevent anyone stealing the ending. Clearly, these people took this stuff very seriously. When I visited Campbell's home, 
This time to see if he or his family wanted to press assault charges, I took the time during what was supposed to be a bathroom visit to have a quick look in Michael's bedroom. What I saw were shelves filled almost to overflowing with small notebooks, all of which had pages, hundreds upon hundreds of pages, stitched into them. Looking quickly through one, I read the final pages of Moby Dick and saw names scrawled in Brio at the top of the page. Then the end of Dracula, with another name. The Da Vinci Code, pages from a car magazine, the last pages of a menu, all with names neatly printed at the top. Michael did not have a book of ends, he had compiled a library. A month before I retired from the police force altogether, Liam Williams died of a suspected heart attack. His wife maintains to this day that the man was harassed into his grave, receiving letters and text messages with ever-decreasing numbers over a year, numbers which suspiciously reached zero on the day of his death. A month after I retired, Nathan Banks' parents died in a car crash. They were returning from church. Despite having retired, I felt the need to do at least a little investigating to ease my own mind. Surely enough, the reverend at the church confirmed that two of the hymn books used during the service had been vandalized, the final pages having been removed. Nowadays, whenever I handle books, magazines, even pamphlets that come through the door, I am always tempted to start reading from the end.